Hello, and welcome to Grand Dukes of the West. Supplemental 4, The Civil War of Words, Burgundian Propaganda and Symbolism. In our last episode, we killed off John the Fearless. But before we get to Philip the Good, I want to take some time to further explore a few topics relating to John's tenure as Duke of Burgundy and the Armagnac-Burgundian Civil War. So after this episode on Burgundian propaganda, we're going to explore the writings of Christine de Pizan, and after that we're going to look at the Rapondi Company and the subject of ducal finance. After these three episodes, we're going to return to the narrative, but we will be going back in time a little bit for our second Grand Dukes of the Center supplemental on the House of Wittelsbach. And after that, we'll be returning to the Low Countries to look at the Wittelsbach-ruled counties of Hainaut, Holland, and Zeeland, along with the long-running conflict between the Hook and Cod factions. So we're going to have a lot of supplemental episodes back-to-back -back over the coming weeks, and I hope you'll stick with me as we close the book on John the Fearless and set the stage for Philip the Good and the Burgundian Union. Throughout the episodes on John the Fearless, I've repeatedly remarked that John was much better at public relations and propaganda than his enemies, but haven't really gone into much detail about it. So in this episode, we're going to explore what that means and how he did it. But before we begin, I'd like to highlight the excellent work of Dr. Emily J. Hutchison. Both her article, Winning Hearts and Minds in Early 15th Century France, and her dissertation, Burgundian propaganda under John the Fearless, as this episode will draw heavily on both. If we're going to dive into propaganda, we should start with the image that John the Fearless cultivated. I've repeatedly described the second Valois Duke as a reformer, an anti-taxer, and a champion of good government and the public good. These were all true, at least to an extent, but they were also all part of an image that John purposefully built up. John wasn't the first or last prince to identify with these. In fact, Philip the Bold made sure to put forward a public image that did hit many of the same notes, despite his constant appropriation of royal revenues. We saw that in the lead-up to Philip's confrontation with Louis of Orléans in 1401, he penned a letter to the Parlement of Paris complaining of the mismanagement of the realm by the Orléanist-led royal council, an argument that his son would return to as duke. And while Philip never fought as hard against taxes as John did, the overall level of taxation was lower when Philip was in charge, in part because the later years of his life were marked by a period of peace with England. While tensions across the Channel were definitely rising, there was less of a need for taxation in the kingdom, and the years of princes looting the treasury hadn't quite taken their toll yet. A similar position was taken up by Henry V during his invasion of Normandy. The King of England made a concerted attempt to appeal to the legacy of King Louis IX, otherwise known as Saint Louis, whose reign was now being seen as a golden age. Henry promised to abolish unjust taxes and bring good government back to France. How much this helped the king in his campaign is debatable, but it did serve as an ideological pillar of the Norman campaign. So John was not unique in his choice of ideals. And just as the Duke of Burgundy made sure to identify himself with good government and low taxes, he made sure to identify his opponents, first Louis of Orléans and then the wider Armagnac faction, with corruption and crushing taxation. 
In the early 15th century, the French crown was in the middle of a long and not entirely linear process of changing how taxation in the kingdom was handled, in large part due to the financial pressures of the Hundred Years' War. While I won't be getting into the specifics of that process, it was clear to the average French taxpayer in the early 1400s that they were paying far more in taxes than previous generations had. Louis of Orléans became a useful focus of anti-tax anger as he was the one most publicly championing the taxes. To be fair, money was needed for Louis's campaigns against the English, but the perception that these taxes were being misappropriated was not invented out of whole cloth, and that point was emphasized further by the Burgundians at every opportunity. To make the Orleanist position more difficult, John the Fearless claimed in 1405 that if the royal taxes were not being misused, that the war with the English could have been ended by now, thus linking the desire for peace with hatred of taxes. Along with complaints about taxes came accusations of corruption and mismanagement of government. Due to Charles VI's inability to govern for long stretches of time, power often devolved to the royal council, and after Philip the Bold died, Louis of Orléans dominated that royal council. The Duke of Orléans had taken steps to ensure that his cousin would not be able to wield influence even approaching the level of his father, and so John was repeatedly excluded from power. This exclusion did much to push him to become a champion of reform. By waving the banner of reform, John the Fearless was able to capitalize on the wider discontent with the Duke of Orléans and present himself as an alternative. John made this move early on in his reign, and the first major examples of this kind of Burgundian propaganda date to 1405. As Emily Hutchison writes, quote, This early request for reform was, and remains, a very significant document from John the Fearless's propaganda campaign. It is important because as the first public criticism of Louis of Orléans, it was very influential in setting the tone of future propaganda, thereby helping to construct the Burgundian conceptual framework within which the ideology would operate over the course of the following decade. In the aftermath of the kidnapping of the Dauphin, John claimed that the state of the government was an embarrassment to the king and the kingdom. He stated that there were four core issues that threatened the realm. The impoverishment of the king through gifts of money, the shrinking of the royal domain through gifts of land, the decreased efficacy of royal justice, and the fact that the government was no longer pursuing the common good. These were all laid at the feet of Orléans, with the not-so-subtle insinuation that a Burgundian-led government would fix those issues. Orléans' unpopularity was not a Burgundian invention, but it was capitalized upon and repeatedly stressed. The magnum opus of Burgundian propaganda in the first years of John's reign would have to be the justification of the assassination of the Duke of Orléans. The theologian Jean Petit put together four hours worth of slander and propaganda against the now-dead Duke of Orléans that was so damaging to his reputation that Louis' sons and supporters referred to it as his second death. I explored the justification back in episode 23. In that episode, I focused mostly on the conspiratorial claims against him such as the Burgundian idea that he was behind the king's illness and had tried to poison his brother. 
but here I want to focus more on the accusations of misgovernment. Obviously, all the juicier and more scandalous claims of the justification also fall into the realm of propaganda, but they were more tied to Louis of Orléans, the person, whereas the poor management of the realm will be extended to the other Armagnacs too. We see another example of John stressing the same points as he did after the kidnapping of the Dauphin over a decade later in his 1417 manifesto issued at Edon. The manifesto opened with accusations that the Armagnacs had kept the king in poverty, that they had ceased running the royal administration effectively or pursuing royal justice, and that they were using their control of the government to enrich themselves rather than pursue the common good. John also included a laundry list of other scandals in this manifesto, such as an accusation that the Armagnacs poisoned the Dauphin, but his core argument that his enemies were the enemies of good government remained consistent for over 12 years. Now it's easy to champion major reform when you're not in power, but John the Fearless continued to beat that drum during his time steering the ship of state. There's a very good argument to be had as to how much his rhetoric of reform was a veneer to legitimize his hold on power as opposed to an actual, earnest reform program. But this is an episode on propaganda, so we really just need to focus on what he said. John's execution of Jean de Montague fits neatly into this debate that we're not going to have. On one hand, Montague was a personal enemy of the Duke of Burgundy, but on the other, he was undoubtedly corrupt. Still though, his execution centered on something he undoubtedly did not do, the accusation that he had conspired with Orléans to prolong the king's illness. The execution of Jean de Montague thus served John in three ways. It got rid of a personal enemy, it showed John's commitment to rooting out corruption, and it reaffirmed the arguments made in the justification. Therefore, this judicial murder can be seen as a piece of Burgundian propaganda as much as it was an act of political revenge. The Duke of Burgundy continued to champion reform throughout his time in power, up to when he left Paris after the fall of the Cabochia rebels. While I'm still not sure of the extent to which he was involved in the Cabochia uprising itself, his propaganda and imagery helped spark it at the very least. John was quite vocal in calling for the Estates General to be summoned in 1413, and in turn he was repeatedly given support by the more reform-minded delegates to the Estates. When the uprising really got going, the targets of the Cabochon's wrath were always branded as Armagnacs, and the Burgundian reform program got perhaps its purest expression in the Ordnance Cabochon. Whether or not John truly believed in the cause of reform was irrelevant, as his supporters clearly saw him as the champion of good government and the Armagnacs as its enemies. And as the enemies of good government, the Armagnacs were also disloyal traitors, and their periods of rule were marked with tyranny and represented a perversion of the natural order of things. John, on the other hand, was the natural leader of France. He was a grandson of the king, and not only was he first peer of the realm as the Duke of Burgundy, but thanks to his role as Count of Flanders, he was a peer of the realm twice over. His daughter was married to the Dauphin, and his heir was married to a French princess. His power over the kingdom when the king was absent was not motivated by ambition, but by a responsibility to responsibly govern, which was innately tied to his role in the kingdom and his familial relationship with the king, at least according to him. 
Now this neatly passes over the fact that the Armagnac leaders were also amongst the highest princes of the kingdom. But John always made sure to focus his wrath on the low-born and unworthy royal officers and advisors that were maliciously controlling the king. I will also note that this form of propaganda does see a marked increase after Agincourt, when this argument can be made slightly more credulously. And of course Louis of Orléans and his children outraked the Duke of Burgundy in the courtly hierarchy, which was why the arguments of misrule and corruption in the justification were so useful to John. Along with the idea that low-born men without station were the ones manipulating the king, comes the idea that these men had usurped the rightful power of the crown. This argument was extended to the Armagnac princes. John repeatedly claimed that the Armagnacs imprisoned the king and Dauphin and were ruling as tyrants. The Duke of Burgundy used a similar argument in his justification, where Jean Petit repeatedly used the terms tyrant, traitor, and disloyal together to describe the character and actions of the Duke of Orléans. By usurping the power of the king and misgoverning the realm, Orléans and his followers were tyrants as well as false and disloyal traitors, a phrase that comes up repeatedly in Burgundian propaganda. Whenever the Orléanists or Armagnacs were in charge of the realm, they were manipulating the king, mismanaging the kingdom, and ruling the kingdom only for their own good. Declarations of the royal council could and should be ignored, as they represented not the true will of the king, but the will of a faction. On the other hand, whenever the Burgundians were in charge, they ruled for the public good and supported the king. To ignore or contravene a decision of the Burgundian-dominated royal council would be treason. John's focus on the public good, the damage that his enemies are doing to the realm through misgovernment, and their disloyalty to the king through opposition to the Burgundian-dominated royal council, effectively turned his private feud into a public one. This can be contrasted with much of the Armagnac counter-propaganda. When we look at the publications of the Armagnacs, such as the Orleanist Declaration from Jargeau in 1411, we see that while their argument does include accusations of misrule, ambition, and evil hatred, the core of their argument focuses on the injustice of Louis of Orleans' murder and John's pardon for the deed. Now this is a fairly powerful emotional appeal, and it did work to some extent but the manifesto really only served to bolster those already on the Orleanist side. Those in France who disliked Louis' tenure as master of the kingdom were not going to try and avenge him, even if they did disagree with his murder. So while John worked to turn the feud into a public affair, the Orleanists and Armagnacs doubled down on their private motivations for opposing the Duke of Burgundy. But as the Civil War dragged on, the Armagnacs did begin to use propaganda more effectively. For example, when John was exiled from the capital after the Kabochia uprising, he was constantly complaining about defamatory proclamations coming from Armagnac-controlled Paris, and a centerpiece of the 1414 Peace of Arras was the rehabilitation of John's reputation and the rewording of certain royal decrees which blamed him for the Civil War. Now that we've explored the core of the Burgundian argument that the Duke of Burgundy was for good government, lower taxes, fighting corruption, and the public good, while on the other hand, the Armagnacs were for corruption, personal enrichment, high taxes, and tyranny. Let's look into how John the Fearless displayed his argument. We've already seen many examples of the core Burgundian propaganda texts throughout the show. There were the letters written after the kidnapping of the Dauphin, 
the justification, John's response to the Jargeau Manifesto, and the Duke's own Edom Manifesto. All of these were purposefully distributed to the Bonvilles of the kingdom. Bonville, or good town, is one of those terms without a precise definition, but is generally seen as either the towns with walls, royal towns, or simply just the principal towns of a region. And of course, all three groups overlapped significantly. Emily Hutchison writes, quote, Because of their regular involvement in governmental affairs, especially in the second half of the 14th century, the Bonvilles had a history of direct communication with the king. As a result of the Hundred Years' War, the towns had become more vocal about their desire for peace and stability, and about their dissatisfaction with the government of the realm. Moreover, they wanted the government to keep them informed about how it was spending its money. Therefore, the Bonvilles became a natural place for John the Fearless to market his reform program, and first amongst these was the city of Paris. Paris and the other good towns of the realm provided the Duke of Burgundy with moral, popular, and financial support. Many times throughout the show, I've noted how the support of the Parisians was critical in John's control of the city and the kingdom. John would send copies of his various letters and proclamations to the various towns of the realm to be read aloud and then posted on the door of the local cathedral. For those who could read, the contents of the letters were thus still publicly accessible, and even for those who couldn't, the physical letter still represented the Duke of Burgundy's commitment to including the towns in the government of the realm. The late medieval period saw the towns of France becoming more and more important, not only as places of fortification, but also as economic and political centers. Therefore, securing the support of the towns for their Burgundian cause represented a major win for the Duke. But the towns were not a monolith. As we know from the many Flemish urban convulsions, there was always some level of conflict between the magistrates of the town, the great merchants, the guildsmen, and the poor workers. The Duke of Burgundy worked to appeal to all of these groups, but sometimes his alliance with one ended up causing him to lose support with another. As we saw in the aftermath of the Cabochian uprising, his alliance with the guildsmen, and especially the butchers, caused him to lose the support of the University of Paris, whose students and theologians tended to come from the upper classes of the towns and the aristocrats. And, after taking Paris back in 1418, he moved away from the lower classes back towards the bourgeoisie. After the fall of the Cabochian and the retreat of John the Fearless from Paris, the Duke of Burgundy still had many supporters in the city who often tried to deliver it to him. The repressive control that the Count of Armagnac employed in Paris while he served as Constable of France is a testament to the Duke of Burgundy's popularity in the capital. And John maintained that popularity by consistently sending messages, declarations, and manifestos to the city in support of his cause. But Burgundian propaganda was not limited to letters and manifestos. The Duke of Burgundy also made sure to use symbolism and ceremony to spread his messages. John's favorite personal emblem was the carpenter's plane. Carpenter's planes and wood shavings appear constantly in the Duke's symbolism, on his clothes, his war banners, his badges, and even carved onto the walls of his residences. John allegedly chose this symbol as a counter to the Duke of Orleans' knotty branch, with the implication thus that he would smooth it down. 
but the carpenter's plane had other implications that would also serve John well. The smoothing associated with the tool does not only have to do with the Duke of Orleans branch. The plane could also represent his commitment to smoothing out the corruption in the French government, and the wood shavings along with the plane would thus represent the work that he has already done to root out corruption and fight for good government. John also used the hammer and mason's level as emblems on occasion, although not with the same frequency as he did the plane. The level carries a similar connotation to the plane, that John wants to set the government of France on a solid and even footing, while the hammer had become identified with opposition to taxation, and possibly called back to the Mayotan anti-tax revolt which I covered in episode 9. These three emblems were also all tools of the artisan class. By choosing such tools, John further identified himself as a champion of the common man, on top of the implication that he would build a better France. Along with these symbols was the saltire, or St. Andrew's Cross, which is probably most identifiable in the Anglophone world as the flag of Scotland. St. Andrew was closely identified with the Valois Dukes of Burgundy, and Philip the Bold allegedly owned a piece of the actual cross that St. Andrew was crucified on. As the Civil War heated up, the saltire became an extremely partisan symbol, with its Armagnac counterpart being a white sash. The sash and saltire both appeared on partisan badges, which would be worn by adherents of each party. Hutchison writes, quote, The proliferation of Burgundian crosses in 1411 forced the people of the realm to choose whether they wanted to be considered Burgundian or Armagnac. The badges were highly visible as symbols of war against the Armagnacs, and thus helped forge a Burgundian identity. The binary process of inclusion and exclusion was crucial to Burgundy's propaganda, because, on a theoretical plane, it reinforced clear policy divisions, whilst, on the ground level, endorsed an abhorrence of the other. Both further perpetuated the dichotomy between good and evil, a cornerstone of Burgundy's ideological platform. The symbolism of sash and saltire was marked whenever Paris changed hands. When the Armagnacs took Paris after the fall of the Cabochiens, they removed many images and sculptures of St. Andrew from the city, and placed white sashes on the others that couldn't be easily moved or covered. When a Parisian man was caught tearing a sash off a statue of St. Andrew in 1414, he was charged with treason and his hand was cut off. And when the Duke of Burgundy began his campaign into Picardy in 1417, many of the residents of various Picard towns donned badges showing the cross of St. Andrew as a symbol of support for John as they seized their towns on his behalf. The same thing happened upon his return to Paris in 1418. John's entrance into Paris in 1418 was also marked with all of the grand ceremonial displays which accompanied a prince's entry into a city. I've brought up joyous entries in the past, but I think it's worth going over what they were again. The specifics of joyous entries varied from town to town and over time, but at its core it was a parade where a ruler would enter a town. But that simple explanation ignores a lot of the subtext to the ceremony. The entrance tended to be conditional on the ruler accepting the rights and privileges of the town, while the town accepted the legitimacy of the ruler. Joyous entries tended to be, well, joyous affairs, but that was not a rule. 
There was often unresolved tension between ruler and town when the entry took place, and on occasion, a joyous entry could spark violence, as we'll see later on in the show. But if all went well, the town would cheer the ruler and welcome them. So when I say that John's entries into Paris resembled joyous entries, this meant more than he was simply popular. It gave his claims to control of the royal council a measure of legitimacy. 1418 wasn't his only grand entry into the capital either. Notable entrances also occurred in 1405, 1408, 1411, and 1412. In all of these, John marching through the streets with an armed force while being cheered on by the people created an imposing image which shored up his power in the city. Through ceremony, symbolism, letters, and oratory, John the Fearless was able to build an image of himself as a reformer, an advocate for good government, and a protector of the public good. And by extension, he painted the Armagnacs and Louis of Orléans as corrupt enemies of the public good. John was loyal to the crown, while his opponents were false traitors. And while John took power to protect the king and the kingdom, his enemies only did so for personal enrichment. The unpopularity and perceived corruption of Louis of Orléans allowed John to put himself forward as an alternative who championed good government. And, through his propaganda, the Duke of Burgundy furthered the perception of Armagnac corruption and misrule. John the Fearless co-opted opposition to corruption and built the Burgundian party on that platform. While his opponents painted their feud with John the Fearless as an attempt to secure justice, the Duke of Burgundy cast his quarrel as a public one, as a crusade to secure and protect the public good. Throughout John's conflict with Louis of Orléans, and then throughout the Civil War, the Duke of Burgundy would be well served by his propaganda. He was far more popular among the people of France, especially in Paris and the other bonne villes of the kingdom, and most contemporary chroniclers tended to support him as well. This positive view of John the Fearless got reinforced in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, when historians influenced by the French Revolution began to reassess this era. Many of these historians took John's propaganda at face value as it fit in with their own view of royal government. John was a champion of the people and a virtuous reformer, while the other members of the royal family, such as Orléans, were decadent and corrupt. In the years since, other schools of history have taken other stances, with the Romantic movement tending to be kinder to the Duke of Orléans, for example. Today, all sorts of perspectives on the Civil War exist, and while I admit that my show looks at things from a Burgundian point of view, I hope that I've done a good job of pointing out John's propaganda and have not necessarily fallen for it myself. Next time, we're going to look at the conflict from someone else's perspective, though, as we dive into the writings of Christine de Pizan and her political philosophy during the Civil War. Once more, I'll be taking some time off before getting to it. But once we're in the new year, we should have a nice string of episodes rolling out as we make our way towards the reign of Philip the Good. Thank you so much to my patrons. Christine, Duchesse de Namur. Elliot, Graf von Kravenstein. Anthony, Comte de Chateauneuf-Nuxois. James, Graf von Temsa. Preston, Comte de Saint-Fargo. Mark, Comte de Mirceau. Diana, Graf von Biersel. Mehmet, Comte Santerre. Chris, 
Comte de Semur, David, Graf von Bornem, Rosa, Comte de Germol, Elliot, Comte de Bussy le Grand, Quinton, Graf von Blasfeld, and to my Knights of the Duchy. If you want to join them, you can at patreon.com slash Burgundy. If you want to support the podcast in other ways, you can do so by leaving a review on your podcast app of choice and telling your friends about the show. Both really help to grow the show and will earn you my everlasting appreciation. If you want to keep up with the show, you can follow me at Valois Burgundy on Twitter or Blue Sky or find Grand Dukes of the West on Facebook. You can also email me at granddukesofthewest at gmail.com and check out the podcast website for maps, images, sources, and more at granddukesofthewest.com. Once again, thank you for listening.